You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Mark chapter 6 this morning, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Just going to bite off another little chunk of the Word of God today, praying that we'll be nourished well through it. And so Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. If you don't have a Bible with you, please stick your hand up. One of our ushers will be more than happy to get you a copy of God's Word that you can, can follow along and, uh, and I pray be impacted by the Word this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Uh, let me start with this before we get to the text today. Ever heard of the concept of carpe diem? What is it? What is it? Seize the day. What about the contemporary version of that? YOLO. Same thing, different words, right? You only live once. This, this idea that, that somehow the, to live life, we have to live it to the full and embrace risk and no regrets, live all out for Jesus Christ, accomplish our bucket lists and uh, good concepts that I think kind of gravitate in our hearts. Like, I want to carpe diem. I want to grab a hold of the day. We live only once. And yet, so often, nothing wrong with those things. It's true. It's, there's something within us that wants that. And yet, so often, company with seize the day and YOLO is this whole reality that we revolve our lives around us and we carpe diem for myself and we only live once for all that I can grab out of life and squeeze out of life and fulfill my dreams and my bucket list and so good concepts yet we miss one reality of the true sense of truly living carpe diem and YOLO we miss the reality of God and what God has for our lives and what God's plans and purposes are for us and so today I want to take those two concepts I want to help you see that there is a way to seize the day there is a way to live only once but this instead this for the glory of Jesus Christ And to truly live for the glory of Jesus Christ, we have to know God and his word. And and, and I pray today as we study John the Baptist that we'll leave here the sense of, yeah, I want to risk it all for Jesus. I want to grab a hold of this day, not for myself, but for Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the great martyrs of the faith, Jim Elliott, said this. He said, we're called to live to the hilt every situation we believe to be the will of God. Let me ask you this as we get into the text. Are you seizing the day for the glory of God? Are you living to the hilt, the full reality of what God has called upon your life? Why do we do this? Because of the glory of Jesus Christ. Because he has saved us, because he has changed us. Now in turn, we respond by giving Jesus our everything and living fully for the glory of Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist did. As we study here in Mark chapter 6, this is what God calls us to. Let me read the text, and we're going to unpack this in a way that I pray will be meaningful for us. Now, John chapter 6, verses 14. Remember from last week, I was going to do one sermon from 6 verse 1 to 629, but got caught up in the text and all that it means for us. And so praying that this will be a good second half of of beware the comfort zone or getting out of your comfort zones for Jesus. Here's how John lived, how we are also called to live for Jesus. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it. This is all that Jesus was doing and teaching and saying. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, uh, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, 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 he's Elijah. And others still said this, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Keynote. And John, he's getting a little bit of angst going on. John, whom I beheaded, has been, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother uh, Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me anything you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And her mother said, The head of John the Baptist. Interesting request. 
And she came immediately in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. I know it's probably not going to be the feel-good, lift-me-up sermon that you were hoping for as you came into church Sunday, but every word in here is inspired and purposeful that God has placed in for our lives and for our good and his glory. And today we see the word of God actually inspiring us to something greater than to living each day for ourselves. We see the word of God inviting us to a life after God's own heart. We even see the word of God instilling within us courage to actually be who God wants us to be and to do what God wants us to do. There's a greater way to live life than for ourselves. I know it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that because the world teaches us, no, just live for yourself. Just do whatever it takes to make yourself fulfilled and happy. But the greater path to fulfillment and happiness, as God points out to us this morning, is through actually abandoning our lives to the purposes of God and the will of God, no matter what the cost. In fact, risking it, risking it, risking it, living risky lives, but not for anything but the glory of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is the pace car for our example of how we're supposed to live the Christian life, John the Baptist is closely second John made the most of his 30 or so years here on earth. And according to Jesus, in Matthew eleven eleven, John was the greatest among men ever born on the planet. What was John's motto? His motto was this, he must increase, I must decrease. His place was obvious. I am not worthy to untie his sandals, he said. His lifestyle was a little bit eccentric. He wore loincloths. Don't suggest this to any of you, please ate wild honey and was a happy wanderer, but his focus was obvious. His desire was to point people to Jesus Christ. He lived for one person, one person alone, Jesus. He lived to seize the day for Jesus Christ. He YOLO'd for Christ. As we look at God's call in our lives, it's not just to live a comfy, cozy Christian life inside the walls of our four, or four walls of our home and to have kids that grow up to be nice, good, law-abiding citizens. That is positive, but it's, it's, it's more than that. There's something more to it than that is to, to totally abandon ourselves to the full reality of Jesus. And, and so this morning as we look at, at risking my life for Jesus, we see from the life of John exactly what that looks like. And, and now I want to clarify this. God's not going to call us probably to be beheaded for Jesus. Maybe so. Maybe as our culture changes, that is going definitely the wrong direction. Maybe one day, but probably not. So I don't want you running out of here saying, well, well I'm going to go now and be beheaded for Jesus. That's not it. But clearly we see from John's life some things that we can grab a hold of that would be beneficial not just to our Christian lives, but to those around us as we aim to put it all on the line for Jesus. And here's the first, here's the first thing you can write in your notes if you're taking notes. If God's call is to put it all on the line for Jesus, I start with determining to stand for truth in this world that is diabolically opposed to the truth of God. If you're going to live this life and seize the day every day and get to the end of this life and not say, man, I, w- I, have no, I have regrets from how I live my life. We're going to get to the end and say, I don't have any regrets. Here's where it starts. It starts here, is determining to stand for truth in a world that is diabolically opposed to it. Look at John's example. Here's the full reality of the text. We're going to understand this text in a deeper way. At first glance, you're like, this is a simple text. It's not too complex, but there's so many little nuances in it and throughout it. We're going to study it and then study the implications for our lives. Now, ultimate reality is this. King Herod heard of all these things, and Jesus, his name was becoming known. Jesus, as he taught and as he did miracles and as he walked around throughout his life, he was causing some good cultural upheaval in the time. He was, he was leaving some wake of destruction within the church, the religious establishment, and the government, and he was grabbing the attention of religious leaders and political powers. And, and this was causing a stress for those in the church that wanted to have all the power and those in the government that wanted the power to be theirs. And so uh, of all people that was, he was catching the attention of, one was King Herod. King Herod is the son of the original King Herod, the Herod the Great. 
who was actually the one that when Jesus was born, we started announcing everyone should be, all the boys should be killed under two, remember? Because it was a threat to his throne, a threat to his power. Well, this isn't the same Herod. This is Herod's son, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas actually, in fact, wasn't a king. When Herod died, four of his, his kingdom was, it was divided into fours. It was quartered up for each of his sons. And so uh, King Herod was a tetrarch. He was in charge of one of the four quarters. Well, why do they call him King Herod? Because this is kind of the pompous reality of the guy who was now in charge of one of the quarters of Herod's kingdom. He actually wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. Probably one of those guys that was like, uh, I'm a tetrarch, but you can call me king. Probably on the bedpost of his house. You know, who lays here? He lays here? The king. One of these guys that set it up that there was going to be no opposition party because he liked the power and he was ruthless and brutal. He could do whatever he wanted when he wanted. And so ultimately he starts to get nervous that Jesus was doing all these great things and he might come in and actually overtake his power. All these people are now following Jesus, so he's getting nervous. He's hearing the stories about Jesus, and we've talked about this already. Who is Jesus? He actually is the son of the living God, but they didn't still quite get that yet, and so they're thinking maybe, maybe it's John the Baptist. Maybe this is who Jesus is, all of his miracles, which is kind of a funny thing, don't you think? Because John the Baptist, how many miracles did he do in his time on earth? Do you remember? Oh, yeah, Zero. So all of a sudden they think this guy doing miracles is John the Baptist. Well, obviously they realize that John was anointed. His teaching was powerful and, and the superstition of, of this new life. And, and when he comes back, he's going to come back and do all these supernatural powers. So thinking maybe John the Baptist, which is causing Herod some stress. Others are saying maybe Elijah. Remember Elijah's great, great feat? Elijah was the guy you know, who had, you know, called down the, hev- the fires from heaven and defeated you know, the 400 prophets of Baal and the 450 prophets of Asherah and, and outnumbered 851, defeated them all as he called the fire from heaven. They're thinking, maybe this is Elijah. He's doing some great and awesome things. Maybe it's just another Old Testament prophet who did such powerful things for the Lord, but the one that really caught his attention was John the Baptist. You know when you've done something wrong and you get that, like, that guilt coming that's like, oh man, I'm going to get caught for this, and you start getting the sweats and the sweaty palms. You know that feeling? Of like, oh, this is going to come back and haunt me. No one but me. <laughs> this is what's happening to King Herod. He's like, uh-oh. This could be John the Baptist coming back. Because it says here, it says here that he was the one who was responsible for the death of John. Why? Why, why would he kill John? It says clearly in the text here that he actually appreciated John's teaching. He was perplexed by it and intrigued by it. But, but, but really, he, he had John murdered because John had been teaching truth to King Herod. Notice this, the boldness of John. Again, it's not just a king, it's a pompous king, an arrogant king, a brutal king, and yet John had the boldness to say to him, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This doesn't fly in our culture today, does it? No, no, you stay to yourself, you do your own thing, you mind your own business. John's minding God's business more than his business. And he goes into King Herod and he reminds him, probably through his preaching, as he's preaching, what's he preaching? Remember what John's message was? His one word summary of John's message was repentance. And so his teaching is putting King Herod, King Herod in a corner. Probably he also was bold enough to go to King Herod and say, uh, uh, Almighty King, uh, you're not living the way that you should. You're actually the, your wife was actually your half-brother Philip's wife. It makes the story a little more intriguing as you study the history of all this. Uh, Herodia, um, his, his wife, what was her name again? Herodias. Isn't that sweet, eh? Herod and Herodias. It's like Don and Donna, Paul and Paula. <laughs> Herod and Herodias. It wasn't just his half-brother's wife. It was also, the, it was also his niece. It was his other half-brother's daughter. You look at me like, I'm like this, is, this is sick. You get, you get the picture of who Herod was? It was his, it was his half-brother's daughter, who married his half-brother, who now he had an affair with and married her. Like, a little intimidating, don't you think, to go into somebody like this with all this power, with all this corruption that is this, this moral, like, epitome of moral debauchery, to go into his house and have the boldness, I'll say boldness, you can think of other words, the boldness to point out to him the fact that what you're doing and how you're living is not according to the word and the ways of God. One word that I think of is intense. 
I get nervous sometimes coming up and standing in front of you guys who are here by your willful desire to hear the word of God and be spiritually punched in the nose. And yet, can you imagine, like, where you're not wanted, where it's not going to be popular, where you know there's going to be consequences to what you say? Speaking of getting out of your comfort zones and taking a risk for Jesus, oh my goodness. And we get worried about people laughing at us or not inviting us to the party. And I think if we're truly going to seize the day for Jesus Christ, if we're truly going to live fully the way that God intended us to live, it starts with somehow we've got to ask God for a deeper conviction, a true deep conviction of the word of truth that he has given us. We love the truth in our church, don't we? we we've been changed by the truth. We grab a hold of the truth. We can't wait to get into the truth. And, and yet, why is it so often then that if the truth is so important to us, if we've, if we've dedicated our whole lives to this, no matter what the cost, and how come it's so hard for us to actually speak it beyond the four walls of our homes and our churches where it really matters most? Remember I told you I was going to be convicted by the next couple sermons too, so like I'm sitting with you. I'm glad you're quiet, you're pondering this. Let me ask us this, like what happened to all the truth tellers? When it comes to God's word, where we know where the difference is, where we know God's word changes lives, where we know there's no other hope for the world around us, where we know the world around us is, is walking away from God and their natural propensity and walking into the abyss of Satan's domain. Why is it that we're so shy to actually stand up and share the truth? to a misinformed and misguided world that we know is going to lose the battle and is going to end up far, far away from the reality of God. All of a sudden, seize the day takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? I believe God calls us as believers to, to seize the day for the truth of God. I believe God calls us as believers to live only once with the reality of God's word at the forefront. In fact, God doesn't just call pastors and prophets to be the ones who herald the word of God. God calls us all now to be his ambassadors, to be his ambassadors in the world around us. In fact, I've given you some verses here that just point out the fact that God has called us to not sit in corners of our, of our little holy huddles, but to get out into the domain of the public with the word of God, into people's lives, with our friends and our families and, and our coworkers and those that so desperately need the truth. We are the ones called to bring the truth. I know you want that to be my job. My job is to bring the truth to you to then go out and Spread it to the world. Here's what Zechariah 8.16 says. You can write these verses down and, and, and take them home with you and, and think about them more deeply. Zechariah 8.16. These are the things that you shall do. What does God want me to do? What does God want me to do with my life? What does God want me to do with my life? What should I do every day? How do I truly love God? Here's what it says. These are the things you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Rend in your gates judgments that are made true and make for peace. Here's what Ephesians 4.15 says, that we are called as believers to speak the truth in love. Philippians 2.16, to hold out the word of life, to hold it out for people, to, 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 to put it in front of people, to prepare a meal of truth for people to, to devour. All doing this, knowing Revelation 22.6, that knowing God's words are faithful and true. I ask myself this as I live in 2020 in North America, striving to live for Jesus, striving to be who God wants me to be, striving to leave, I pray, a legacy of Christ in my home and in your lives, in this community. I ask myself this, why are we so shy? Why am I so shy to share the truth? As I read the scriptures, here's what I want to encourage you with, brothers and sisters, that closet Christians just don't exist. If you're a Christian, you haven't just bought into the truth, but you believe the truth. And a mark of whether we truly believe the truth or not is, is, is whether we're willing to speak 
speak the truth when it matters most. In fact, Luke 9.26 says this, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I will be ashamed of you. Basically, when Jesus comes back. And I, I know it's stepping on toes and making us a little uncomfortable. The Bible does that to us sometimes. We want the warm showers of comfort. Sometimes it's the cold showers of like, wake up, that we need. And so you're thinking, but isn't this unloving? And, and I know John was a prophet, and, and maybe he just had the anointing to come and preach true things that, that aren't called upon me. And, and isn't it just more loving to just to come and accept people and embrace them for who they are? And uh, yeah, yes, it is loving for sure to just embrace people for who they are. But, but like Christ loved us. How did he love us? He welcomed us in just like we were. And, he, and we recognized our sin. This is the gospel. We recognized our sin. We turned to Christ. And Christ said, well, welcome home, son or daughter. And, and I love you just as you are. But, but what's the next step of that? He loved us far too much to leave us in the same place as when we came. So yes, true love welcomes people in, but also true love helps them see the truth of where their lives are headed so that we pray people can turn their lives to Jesus. Let me give you some thoughts here about how we can do this in an effective way in our culture in 2020 because the last thing I want is for uh, you guys to go running out of this place and now to have this, this maybe fleshly bold confidence and to be in your face annoying uh, believers who are going to you know, actually not draw people to Jesus but want to cause people to punch you in the throat. Which we can Go that direction too, which we don't want to do. But how can we do this effectively for the Lord and be bold for Jesus yet respectful of others? Because I, I see so often in our culture, like one or the other, we're, we're trying to be so respectful of others that we never speak the truth. And on this side, we got people who are being so bold that like, they're almost obnoxious and sometimes even I want to punch them in the throat. So we gravitate to one or the other, but is there a way to do this in true health, in a godly way? Well, God calls us to, surely there is. And so let me give you some, some thoughts here as we think about speaking up for Christ. Let me ask you this before we get to these thoughts. When was the last time you actually took a big leap of faith and took a risk for Jesus by speaking up for truth into someone else's life? Your family? You love them dearly. You know, love them all the way to watch them make a mess of their lives and ultimately spend eternity apart from God? What about your friends that you interact with all the time and you call them friends and you love them and yet you don't love them enough to actually speak up and say, hey, you know what, where you're going is wrong. There's a better way. You're gonna ruin your life. What about your coworkers whom you probably know better than your family in some cases we spend more time with our coworkers and our family a lot of times in a week? Do you have a burden for the lost? I pray you do, and if you don't, that's a good place to start, but, but as you go into speaking up for Christ, here's some things you can do this, this coming week as you, as you aim to live out the text. Remember, we're, we're not trying to learn head knowledge here. We're trying to live out the text. Here's some things you can do. You can start praying diligently. You can start praying diligently for those around you that, that, that need to know Jesus. You can start praying diligently that God will give you a heart to share truth and, and not to be the impetuous bull in a china shop, uh, but God will give you a heart to actually come alongside people and, and point them towards truth in a good, helpful, godly way. You can start praying diligently because ultimately, no matter what you share, you can't change anyone's heart and you can't make anyone get it. Only God can do that. Start asking God for courage and, and as you ask God for courage, do this, embrace humility. Here's one thing that I think Christians can learn. We talk about humility a lot. We, we toot the humility horn, but yet when it comes to sometimes sharing truth, we forget humility. We come across as arrogant, self-righteous, know-it-all. Do you like people like that? Me neither. But praying for humility, God, give me true humility. Help me realize that, that I might have the truth, but I don't have it all figured out yet. This will go a long way in sharing your faith and speaking truth to people. Remind yourself that not long ago, you were stuck in your sin, unaware of anything you were doing wrong, and Jesus needed to come in and, and help bring someone into your life to help change you. And, and remind yourself that you're going to, again, need someone coming into your life and giving you a truth conversation. 
So we go into fear and trembling, not going for the jugular in some of these conversations. I know John is a great example, and, and we love John, and maybe God is going to call you to that sometimes, but most of the time he's going to call you to embrace humility and engage this compassionately. Here's where I think we go wrong in sharing our faith and our convictions about who God is and what God says is, is we go in trying to win arguments instead of, instead of loving people. You ever found yourself doing that? Like, I'm going to finally get this person. I'm going to grab them by the neck and I'm going to f- help them figure it out. And what about loving people and compassionately helping people see the desperate need they have for God? Remembering the scriptures tell us that before we knew Jesus, we were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. truly caring about people's lives in this life and the next. Speaking truth has to go hand in hand with love. Speak the truth in Ephesians. Speak the truth in love. I think sometimes we love truth more than we love people. Truth and people we love equally. Ultimately, Jesus the most. How about this one? Convey graciously. What about John? We, we don't know how John actually conveyed this to Herod. I doubt he went into the king's palace and was like, can I have a minute of your time? I have something to tell you. I doubt he did that. Maybe he preached that way, but one-on-one, and we don't, we don't know how he interacted. I doubt he did that. And we see Jesus turning over tables, and we think maybe that's the way we should approach some of these things. But, but notice this. Jesus had the authority to do whatever he wants to do. John was anointed for specific times, a time like this, but notice how Jesus also interacted with people on the other side of the equation. He went to the woman at the well. How did, he, how did he handle the woman at the well? You sinning, adulterous woman. What is wrong with you? He didn't. He put his arm around her. Hey, go to your husband and tell him the things you've learned. I don't have a husband. Yeah, that's right. You have five. It's a little convicting, don't you think? He didn't have to like, bam, you got five. He just, yeah, you have five. Now go and sin no more. Gracious sometimes is far better off than bold. Actually, I think opening your mouth in today's culture is just plain bold, whether you're gracious, and gracious comes along with that. I have to be honest, as I look at how some people share their faith, um, getting in people's grills and caps lock arguments on social media, uh, let me try not to go off on this one. Caps locks arguments on social media probably is not going to be the most effective way to reach out for Jesus. You ever notice this, though, as you do that? As you argue theology and debate and, and point out people's sin and flaws, you notice that the caps lock bold arguments on social media, this is the reason why I'm not on it, because it drives me crazy, generally is engaging other Christians who war against each other and never really draws the unbeliever in. Have you ever noticed that? Me too. Gracious. Well, that's just being pansy, and it's not as being Jesus-like. You're just trying to buck out now, pastor, doing all the hard things. No, we're not. We're trying to be like Jesus Christ. Again, remembering, unbelievers, you might be saying something to them they've never heard before in their lives. Canada, 2020. So many people around us have never even read the Bible. They have no idea what it says. Remember, our ultimate goal is to not win arguments. What's our goal? Or to be right, or to be more spiritual or more superior? What's our goal? To point people to Jesus. And so to do that, remember, people have never heard some of these before. They don't know the sin they're in. They don't know the destruction of their lives. How about we do this? Lead with the gospel. When you confront believers on their sin, uh, sometimes I think we get into the habit really quickly of, of our own little personal preferences or convictions. We make biblical mandates and moral absolutes. And so then we come into, well, you're doing it wrong and you're doing it wrong. Uh, how about this? How about treating brothers and sisters like they're Christians, like they're brothers and sisters in Christ? And how about treating them the same way you'd want to be treated if someone's approach you on some sin issue? After you've prayerfully discerned whether this is a major thing or a minor thing that you need to really jump all over. 
I get it in our culture. I think we want to be bold. People have gravitated to the bold or the gracious. Most have gravitated to the gracious. They never say anything at all. But, but how about, we're pendulum swingers, right? We go one way. There. How about somewhere trying to find a balance in the middle? As we speak courageously. I think many of us would have graciousness. Some of us, maybe not, but many of us would. I think this is the call of John the Baptist is to speak courageously, to, to, to ask God for some inner fortitude. God, give me some inner fortitude and help me speak truth. Help me point people to Jesus. Help me invite people to something better than what they're experiencing. There is a time and a place to stand up and publicly debate some of these things. I'm not discounting that. There's a time and a place, but it's not all of us all the time to stand up and, and talk about abortion and euthanasia and sexuality, some of the issues we face. There is a time for, for, for robust public debate on the things that God cares about deeply as believers. We can't just sit back and let things happen. But we have to remember, too, there's a balance in some of these things. And, and courageous speaking starts with your everyday conversations of caring deeply for those that you love around you. And let the word of God do its thing. We pray for impact. We pray that God will use us. We pray that God will change lives. It's not going to happen if we don't stand for truth. reason we sit here today with truth, because forefathers before us, they, like John the Baptist, gave their all. We actually stand on the blood of the martyrs like John the Baptist, who, who, who really put all the line for, for truth, and, and we're willing to risk for a lot of things in this day and age, well, we risk for truth. And before you go running out of here thinking that you know, you're going to be the person who's going to be uh, starting a discernment blog in your basement and pointing out all the truth and telling everyone how they're wrong and you're right, let me remind you of uh, the second example of John's life. It's not just standing for truth by risking it all. It's also by this, resolving to practice what you preach. So John's calling it out. He's saying to Herod, like, it's unlawful. You have your brother's wife, Herodias, is really ticked by that. And, and she held a grudge, as some do. Again, like from last week, we're not going to please everybody, not even in the church. So let's not try and please everybody outside the church. People aren't going to like us. So much she wanted to put to death. But yet Herod had this fear of John, knowing that, why do you have a fear of John? Knowing that he actually was a, See those two words? He was a righteous and holy man. In other words, he knew John wasn't just touting a message. John's life backed the message he was touting. He was a holy and a righteous man, and so he kept him safe because he realized, that, hey, there is something to this guy's message. He's living what he preaches, and God definitely has an anointing upon his life. And even his message kind of makes sense, and it's perplexing, and it's interesting, and it brings a little life to my dead heart, and yet I just can't seem to get past my own sin. And the point I want to point out to you for this is that John wasn't just a man that preached. John was a man that actually lived his life for the glory of Jesus Christ too. Again, you want to take a risk? You want to take a risk for Jesus? It's not even great risk, like going across the country and going around the world and becoming a missionary in a remote region. Here's what it is today. I think bigger risk maybe sometimes, just standing up today for truth and deciding today I'm going to live my life pursuing holiness and righteousness. Come on, students, you put that into practice, you think it's going to be a little bit of a risk in your schools? Come on, men at work, you don't think that's going to be a little bit of a risk if you all of a sudden decide that you're going to pursue, you're going to pursue righteousness and holiness? Men and women, what is righteousness? This, this, is, how, this is how John lived. He lived a righteous life and a holy life. These are... These are characteristics adopted that God based upon him, put upon him as he was adopted into God's family, a part of the nature of God that we don't necessarily have in our sinful state, but that once we're saved, God puts them upon us. A righteous character, God in all of his, his perfection is ethically impeccable, he's perfect in his righteous conduct in every single way. In other words, he's not like us, and yet he calls us to also be righteous. In other words, it means a morally right living, living rightly before God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what holiness is. It's not this, this idea of now I'm going to be the perfect Christian, I'm going to be I'm going to snub everyone else, my nose up in there because I am, I'm holy and you are not. 
It's this desire to be set apart by God. And if God in his holiness, he is a, it's a sense of otherness. God's holiness is a sense of otherness. God is other than us. He's out of this world. He's nothing like us when it comes to his moral perfection and holiness. And yet when it comes to us, God has called us to be holy as he is holy by being set apart from the world. When you're a Christian, righteousness and holiness is what God instills in you. And like Siamese twins attached to the hip, it's, it's holiness and righteousness. We're going to be righteous without being holy. You can't be. You can't be holy without being righteous. It's Siamese twins. You can't tell where one starts and the other one finishes. Where one goes, the other goes. This is what God calls us to in our Christian lives, a holiness and a righteousness. It's easy to stand up and tout truth sometimes. But it's difficult to actually live out the truth that we've been called to. You know what's going to give credence to your message of truth? The way you live your life. Not what others hear from your lips, but from what others see in your reality of your life. Again, we are so gravitating to one or the other. And well, I'm just going to live holy, but I'm not going to speak truth can't impossible or I'm just going to speak truth but I'm not going to live holy well that doesn't work either it's, it's, it's getting on our faces saying oh God I am a sinner I need grace in all these things help me Lord but God help us not be a church that touts truth and doesn't live it Babylon B you familiar with the Babylon B hilarious it's, it's all it's all irony and parody and all these things with Babylon B uh, not too long ago had a uh, the headline was this uh, man stands for traditional view of marriage um, as he gets married to his fifth wife not just that issue I don't think it's kind of getting at when it poking fun at Christians a little bit but man are we good at preaching it but somehow forgetting that before we preach it, we got to check in here and see what's going on in our lives. Like coming to church on Sunday and getting the words, so you can go tell somebody else without realizing, hey, the word's for me too. John the Baptist preached it, and he lived it. Preached it, and he lived it. Where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to our risk for Jesus Christ, a genuine test of obedience, as John says, is will you, will you actually live out the message of the gospel? What does it mean to be holy and righteous? What does it mean to be holy and righteous? Turn with me to Romans chapter 12 for a moment. I don't want you to get into this legalistic mindset either. That he's calling us to be righteous. He's calling me holy. I can't be holy and righteous. You're right. You can't be holy and righteous, but God makes you holy and righteous by his spirit he puts in you when you're saved. And now his call upon your life and my life to actually make a difference in the world, to live out the marks of a true Christian. He says in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. Even do a little self-evaluation right now of, of how, how risky you're living for Jesus Christ, how, how, how effectively set apart your life is for the glory of God. Look what it says in, in verse 9. Here just... 13 things I'm going to point out from this just quickly and just, just do a little 13-point evaluation of your own heart and your own life. Am I, am, I really, am I really seizing the day for Jesus? Am I really living like it's my last for the glory of the king we serve? Listen to what it says here. Let love be genuine. In other words, not self-seeking or conditional on meeting your own standards. This is, this is what a holy and righteous life looks like. This is what being set apart for Christ looks like. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Purity over promiscuity, integrity over deceit, truth over lies. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, I take the lowest seat at the table instead of the highest seat. I promote others more than myself. I talk less, I listen more. Do not be slothful in zeal. Amazing how we get fired up about a lot of things, but what about Jesus Christ? When you come into church, are you stoked about Jesus? Are you fired up about the things of Christ? Are you zealous about everything? And I do church and Christ on the side. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. In other words, are you fully engaged in what God's doing in the church and the community around the world? Are you it's like pulling teeth to get you to serve the Lord? Are you eagerly serving Christ? Investing in family and friends and small group and desiring your life to make an eternal difference. 
Rejoicing in hope. One thing the world longs for doesn't have is hope. Cling to hope, or you're becoming negative and down like everybody else, and, and thinking that there's there's nothing positive that's gonna come. And, and are you hopeful, Harry, or doubtful Donnie? Always a reason to be hopeful in Jesus Christ. Being patient in tribulation, the world falls apart when tribulation comes. We in the righteousness of God. Uh, Hang on to Christ in tribulation, actually thrive in the midst of the hardest times, constant in prayer, fervent in prayer. Breakfast, lunch, dinner time, and in between, committed to talking and communing with God. This is, this is a holy and righteous life, contributing to the needs of the saints, looking to now seek where I can give more than receive, and seeking to show hospitality instead of padlocking our hearts and our homes and our church even, like swinging the doors wide open for others. Going to verse 14, blessing those who persecute you. And it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Are you set apart when the hardships of living for your faith even come? Are you quick to jump on and point fingers? Or are you blessing and building up? Living in harmony, choosing the less traveled road of putting others before myself and being willing to take a couple of hits for the team instead of ensuring your needs are met? Are you withholding vengeance, knowing that it's the Lord's? Man, this is risky living, isn't it? Let me ask you this this morning before we move on to the last point. This is what God calls upon our lives. This is what Jesus lived, by the way. This is what our Savior lived. If he's our role model, he's the one we're aiming for. Are you living the comfortable, safe life for Christ? Are you actually living the life that God called us to? The, all the, 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 the fulfillment of joy that you're looking for. Are you missing that in Christ and living the world? Or are you living for Christ? Let me ask it in this way. If someone were to bust in here right now, in this, this room right now, and arrest us all for being a Christian and took us out, would there be enough evidence to truly convict you? If you're arrested for being a Christian, there'd be enough evidence to truly convict you. I don't ask you this to, this to pound shame into your heart. I ask you this because I want you to see the better life, the life that God has called us to as you, I pray, do this, what John did, fully entrust your life to Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be sold out for Jesus Christ. This is what God has called us to live as believers, to, to speak truth, to, to live out holiness and righteousness, but ultimately to trust your life to Jesus Christ. This is what John the Baptist embodied for us so well, what caused Jesus to say he's the most highly exalted above men ever born of a woman because he ultimately left his life to Jesus Christ. Here's where the soap opera begins in the text. Picture of a fearless prophet, a vicious king, an evil woman, a provocative teenager. This is Herod's birthday party happening here. Notice this. This is Herod's birthday party. He's invited all the important people. He's invited the nobles and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. He's invited the uppity ups and the who's who of the religious realm and the governments. It's a big, big party of men is what it is. A man's party, you know what I mean? It's like, ah, man's party. They're drinking. They're having, they're having great food. He even calls in Herodias, his his, Herodias, his daughter, so his stepdaughter to come in and dance. She's not doing this nice little ballet, just so you know. She's not doing this nice little pretty, pretty little ballet. She's coming and doing this erotic, sexual, sensual dance, and she's probably a upper teenager at this point. So this is like the epitome of a debauchery party, and this is and they're, apparently she did a good job because he's, like, he's loving it. He's offering her half of his kingdom in his drunken state. I just want a sub point for this. Doesn't drunkenness always lead to these like irrational decisions and ridiculous calls in life? So here he is, he's like, oh, you're doing a good job. Are you going to have half of my, do you even have a kingdom to offer? Oh yeah, he does, he's in charge of a quarter of the kingdom. Commentary says he doesn't have authority, basically it's more of a bravado statement of like, like, like I'm the big shot here, like whatever you want, I'll give. And so she goes to her mom and her mom's holding this grudge. Sometimes ladies hold grudges a long time. Guys just duke it out and the ladies like, no, there's three years later, they're still thinking about it. Why don't you just duke it out like guys? She's holding this grudge. She's like, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. So immediately he's like, ah, no. Notice the regret, the, the regret of drunken decisions. Oh, no. It's an oath, right? And so back in the day, oaths were a big deal. Today, oaths aren't a thing. 
I made an oath to be at this phone company for three years, but like, I'll find loopholes in that, and let's find loopholes in the law. Like, uh, I gave my word, but it doesn't matter. That was yesterday. To, you know, back in the day, oaths were oaths. If you said an oath, you're, you're bound to your oath. And probably more than you're bound to an oath, he's trying to impress his buddies, right? Like, oh, of course I'll do it. But immediately he's thinking, like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Bottom line is, within minutes, crazy story, isn't it? Isn't it a crazy story? Within minutes, here's John's head on a platter, like the movies. And we're sitting here thinking, oh, no. Another young life ended early. Another travesty for one in the kingdom of God. The, the best go young, right? And, and like, what was God thinking? Where was God? That's what you notice, brothers and sisters. This was God's plan for John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist supposed to do in this life? What was he supposed to do? He was Jesus' forerunner, Right? In other words, he was supposed to set the stage for Jesus. He was supposed to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Now that Jesus was here, guess what? John's role was over. But what about living happily ever after with his dreams, in his dream house, with his gorgeous wife and the perfect kids? What about all that stuff? That maybe is our Canadian dream, but that's not God's dreams for all of our lives. For John, he lived the dream. He was faithful to God. He was obedient to God. And his life ended not too early or too late, but exactly at the right time of what God had ordained for his life to be. John fully entrusted his life to Jesus. Instead of chasing all the things of the world, instead of wasting his life trying to build a name for himself and a kingdom for himself, he realized the better way, the better life was simple surrender to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm going to trust you with my life. You look at John the Baptist's life, and it wasn't that... Anyone want to be John the Baptist when you grew up when you were a kid? I want to live with nothing and have no comfort and no friends and have my head chopped off around 30 years old. None of it. But, but get this, get this. He lived what we are called to live, a totally surrendered, heart-abandoned life to Jesus Christ that God would do something through our lives and in our lives that we could never dream up of our own, but only God could do in a way that only God could accomplish great purposes. You want to, risk, you want to live risky? You want to see the fullness of God come alive in your life? Try living like that this coming year. Got all my plans for the year. I'm erasing. I'm going to seek you. I want your plans. I want to live. I want to speak truth. I want to live wholeheartedly for you. And I want you to do something through my life that you've never done before. This is the year I want to see God in a way I've never seen God before as I live totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Let's live like John. Not like Herod. Notice the difference between John and Herod. I think many Christians live like Herod instead of like John. Look at Herod. Herod's this big chicken trying to people please everybody, trying to be this big machismo guy that he's not even. He might have succeeded a little bit on this life, but what happens after this life? Like, unless Herod became a Christian after this, that's a waste. Look at John, on the other hand. John is, is bold as a lion. You know, John is, is embracing Jesus' teaching. He's living to please God. He's not living to elevate himself, but to elevate Jesus. And in the end, guess what? John wins. John wins. And maybe he didn't get something super spectacular here on this earth. But he got something far better that Jesus promises every one of his believers, every one of his children. He got something far better. He promised every one of us that if we will actually take God at his word and live wholeheartedly for Jesus and take risks for Jesus, enough comfortable living, take risks for Jesus, here's what he promises. He promises that one day we're going to have something far greater than anything this world could ever offer. One day we are going to actually see him face to face. We're going to go strolling into his throne room. We're going to be able to sit at the throne room of God talking with our Savior. We're going to have a, we have a house prepared for us, better than any little house on a stream here in Canada. We're going to have a house prepared for us of gold and, and precious jewels. We're going to actually be in glory with God forever. But the scripture says it's, only for those who truly believe is evidenced by the way they live their lives for the glory of God. Philippians 1.21 says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For, for the people who truly live that and believe that, I, I, for me to live is to live as Christ and to die is actually gain. Jim Elliot, the martyr, 
back in the Alka Indians in the mid-50s, around somewhere in there, said this, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, the promises of God, yes, there's a salvation of like, yes, I believe, yes, I repent, yes, I have faith, but the natural outpouring of that is, is, is living wholeheartedly for Jesus and actually losing our lives here on this earth to only find it with Christ here and forever. Jesus Christ said the same thing in Matthew 10, verse 39. Sorry, I gave you Jesus instead of, I gave you Jim Elliot said this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain when he cannot lose. It's Jesus that said this, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Brothers and sisters, it's time we carpe diem for God's purposes in our lives. It's time we YOLO'd for the cause of Christ. It's time we stop just coming to church, putting in our time, and living like everybody else. I know it's not everyone, it's not all of us we're aiming for, but it's time to step up. It's time to risk that we may see the fullness of what God has for you and I in our church in 2020 in the Niagara region but for the glory of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, so much to learn through your word. So much to draw out of the tax that applies to our lives. God, today as we study through Mark chapter 6, I pray, I pray, oh God, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us. I pray, oh God, that you'd rock us out of our comfort zones, that we long to take risks for you, Father. I pray, God, for those that are here that are still living in their own sin, that are living in, in a sense in the way that Herod lived. Oh, Father, would you stop them in their tracks right now? Would you help them see the truth of the sinful decisions they are making, the sinful way they're living their lives that is leading to destruction of their own lives, but ultimately leading, leading to eternity away from you. And Father, would you, would you do a renewal in their hearts right now? Would you cause them not just to know the truth, but want to live the truth, God? Would you cause repentance to even fall upon this place this morning as we recognize, God, the desperate need we have to truly engage fully in the life of Jesus Christ? God, I pray you would motivate us. I pray you'd inspire us. I pray you'd encourage us. I pray, oh God, we'd even recommit today for those that want to stand on truth and have been standing on truth but maybe have been coming lax in that. Would you recommit within us today a desire to love people by telling the truth? Father, would you recommit in us a desire to live in holiness and to put aside all of our natural inhibitions to live for you wholeheartedly? And ultimately, God, we allow you to take our lives and allow our lives to be entrusted into your hands. We don't know what you have for us in this life. We have our hopes and our dreams. But God, may we realize today that your dreams are better. Your hopes are right. And will we truly, God, as Jesus says, would we truly be willing to lose our life that we might find it? Please, oh God, work. May we not just hear the word and go on our merry day. But may you draw us, may you draw us near to your son. Amen.